0: You're listening to The Best Of, The Michelle Meow Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Meow.
1: It's Michelle Meow, You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Yay! Welcome! It's Tuesday, and I'm not even going to try to tell you what the date is um, but all I know is that it's Tuesday I hear it's November 10th it's November 10th <laughs> I was like oh, wait are we like just a few days uh, away from Thanksgiving no just a couple weeks Michelle <laughs> <laughs> I want the holidays to come so so bad it's November 10th I'm Michelle Miao your host and it's Tuesday so that means John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us John hey, Michelle. thanks so much for being with us we missed you
2: nice to be back
1: and I think the show missed me <laughs> I have to apologize and I thank BB Sweetbriar, uh, who does our Sunday show, uh, for filling in for me. I mean, it's just been that kind of year. Um, I really didn't expect, you know, once taking the role of board president for things to just transpire and happen, uh, but it has, which I'm excited for. But what I can tell you is that for the rest of the year, you have me. I'm not going anywhere. So we are going to do some. Awesome, good shows and interviews that we normally do. and John, uh, you promised that y- you'll be with us forever and ever and ever.
2: Oh, this is starting to sound like a Scientology contract
1: <laughs> <laughs> So I have news. Um, I'm now on Snapchat, oh. And I learned to Snapchat when I was uh, in Arkansas, and and, and I I talked about this last week. You weren't here, and I I wanted to get your thoughts and feedback on just my trip there. But since, you know, I'm now on Snapchat, I might as well Snapchat for if you could just scoot in. John, really? No, he's scooting out. He doesn't want to be on my Snapchat. Well, um, that's right. I'm on Snapchat now. Hello, Snapchatters. I'm so, so Glad to be back on the show. Um, And so if you're on Snapchat, you can follow me, Michelle Meow. I do uh, silly things, and, of course, I take annoying pictures of food. Anyway, um, so I mentioned Walmart, John, and I thought that you might be interested in this because you do our political show for the Commonwealth Club on Friday. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was an interesting trip. Uh, You know, I got to spend a little bit of time with the CEO of Walmart.
2: What was that like?
1: Um. uh, well, you know what? I will be honest with you because I can be on 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 this show. I'm not there in Bentonville, and I don't <laughs> want to say anything to offend anybody. And and again, like for all the employees of Walmart, I am all about uh, you know protecting your jobs. Uh, I don't want to offend anyone, but I will say one thing. I I did feel kind of uh, I felt like it was a little creepy. Uh, you know, it we I. I uh, They invited me to be a part of this Emerge Summit, and so I realized that it was a group of millennials, and Mm -hmm. they were targeting a certain age demographic of individuals from civil rights organizations to, yes, San Francisco Pride or, you know, me, the the progressive talk show host, and they wanted to know, like, our personal emotional feelings regarding Walmart, which, of course, was all bad.
2: (laughs) (laughs) From everyone or just from you?
1: No, from everyone. Really? Um, and uh, they just kind of wanted to figure out why and why we would rather shop at Target. So, you know, there was one session where I was just pissed off. Like, they wanted me to write a television ad, um, you know, that would, that, in my opinion, would, would work for Walmart. And it was like, my no. no. <laughs> I refused at first, and then I just said, hey, here's what the ad, I think, you know, it should sound like it should have your CEO apologizing for all the, Horrible things that the company has done as, more lar- as the largest retailer in the world, I believe. And uh, and and to say we acknowledge that and here are some things that we're doing that can be taken as progressive and we promise to do better. And of course, they did not like my ad. <laughs> anyway, let's get the show started. Uh, again, I'm so excited to be back and, and because I feel that the two uh, guests that we have really um, – You know, it's a representation of what this program is about and what we talk about. So our next guest is the executive director of the Gubbio Project, which is a a place where it provides a safe place for homeless people to to rest and sleep Monday through Friday during the days, uh, whether in the pews or on the floors of the St. Boniface Church in the Tenderloin. They have an incredible cool event coming up in December. So I'm very happy to have Laura Slattery on the show. Laura, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks, Michelle. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, so I just mentioned it. I said that, you know, I, I, I really um, am happy and excited for you to be a guest here on the show because I feel that the topics and the issues um, that, you know, in, an organization like the Gubbio Project is exactly what we want to talk about here, um, topics and issues that affect the most marginalized of our community. Uh, talk to us, you know, just to start off a little bit more about the Gubbio Project. Oh, great, thanks. So we were started
3: 11 years ago um, by the pastor of the church and also uh, the executive director, Shelley Roder, who was uh, the executive director of the Saint Boniface Neighborhood Center. And they were talking to people and saying, "What do you need?" Um, people who were living on the streets, and they were saying, "You know, we really need a safe, warm place to be during the day." And the church was there. They were, they have. At that time, they had three masses in the morning, and people were coming in anyway um, just because it was it was dry and, and, and warm. And so they just kind of institutionalized that and said, well, you know, we want to be a welcoming space for you, and so why, why don't you lay down and get the rest that you need? Um, and that morphed into what it is today where we probably see about 250 to 300 people a day. Um, we open at 6 a.m. every morning, and by the time the first Mass starts uh, at 7.30, there's already 100-plus people sleeping in the back two-thirds of the church.
2: Laura, give us some background on the name, Gubbio Project. What does that mean?
3: Goodwill. The, the parish is a Franciscan parish. So, like the, the the city of San Francisco is named after Saint Francis of Assisi. This particular parish is a Franciscan parish, and the town right next to Assisi is the town of Gubbio. Uh, and there's a story about Saint Francis. Uh, they called him in to, to negotiate a, a peace between a wolf and the townspeople, um, and in the end, uh, the wolf becomes Brother Wolf, and the the townspeople become you know Sister Townsperson. Um, so in the same kind of way, we're hoping between all all the actors you know, in the local area between the, the parishioners and the people who are living on the streets and the students at the Marriac Academy and the neighbors, how do we all become uh, brothers and sisters, right?
2: So you, you mentioned this providing a place during the day where they can be, and I, I don't think most people know that, at least, I don't know if it's nationwide or just in San Francisco city shelters. The people do have to leave at 6 a.m. They're, they're, I believe it's 6 a.m., right? They have to go out and mm-hmm. they can't come back until the evening. Um,
3: yeah, the majority of the shelters. There are a couple where if people are on a medical rest that they can stay.
2: Mm-hmm. So um, what else, because you provide other things as well as just a place to, to rest. Um, you, you started adding other services in there. How did that come about and what are the most needed things for these people?
3: good. well it's, it's always been a both and a place where people could get rest but also a place of a low you know low obstacle low barrier engagement place to engage folks um, and so from the beginning we gave out socks and blankets, um, haircuts, uh, massage uh, partner with a great organization called Care Through Touch um, about five years ago we started doing breakfast on Friday mornings. Um, what else do we do? Uh, we started doing foot care about a year ago.
1: Foot care? What, uh-huh. So what do you mean by foot care?
3: Well, we have a, a volunteer nursed podiatrist mm-hmm. who's been coming for the last six months. Mm-hmm. It's, been very, it's been very helpful well, for and, our and,
2: guests. Yeah, I and that, that kind of sounds a little arcane, except that, I, I mean, I've heard who've worked in this issue to talk about how that's one of the biggest issues of you know a small cut can go untreated and and you know mm-hmm. it, it, these are very important things and of course when you're not getting medical care a lot that can become Seriously, it right. to become deadly even. So.
1: Right. Laura, I wanted to go ahead and open up, you know, the uh, discussion about homelessness, specifically in San Francisco. We just voted on a few uh, bills, uh, you know, that that also impact just kind of this larger discussion about access to housing. Uh, and, you know, of course, the controversy around uh, the lack of housing available that is affordable um, the Gubbio Project probably is one of the most compassionate organizations that I'm, I've seen or that I've heard of when it comes to homelessness here in San Francisco. Kind of, you know, what are your thoughts in terms of the number of homeless people? People that come through the Gubio project or the organization, uh, some politicians are saying that you know they they are doing okay with homelessness here in the city that it's being addressed the issue of and that the numbers have not necessarily increased. What are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, more needs to be done. Uh, there are four different places now that have claimed states of emergency: right? Los Angeles, Hawaii, um, I think Portland, and Seattle, and. While I'm not sure that's the answer for Seattle, that kind of uh, intensity and that kind of acknowledgement, right, that it's not okay that we've got over 6,500 people living on the streets in San Francisco. And so it really needs to be a change of mindset. A lot of people say, oh, people just, they're choosing to be homeless. And and that's a fallacy, and I, I work a lot to try and undo that. Fallacy. There, there's, you know, you talk to a couple of people, and of course, because pride is going to be, uh, yeah, I'd rather be out here. You know, they're going to say, you know, they're going to say that. But you know, you offer them a two-bedroom place in Pacific Heights, and there's, I couldn't probably find a homeless person that wouldn't take that two-bedroom, you know, that two-bedroom place. So I think when you look at the shelters, there's a thousand, two hundred, I think, shelter beds at night, and so that's like five thousand people mm-hmm. who actually don't have shelter at night. Um, the numbers probably like more like 3,500 um, that are unsheltered because other people are in, in jails and in hospitals and stuff. And so you really the, the things like the Navigation Center, what's, what's working about the Navigation Center is the concentrated resources. But w- what's not uh, mentioned when they talk about the Navigation Center and its successes is how then some of the resources are being pulled from the other uh, shelters. And if we could just get that level of scrutiny and that level of resource um, resources at the other shelters where the other 1,200 people are staying every night they also would like to move on to a house they also (laughs) would like to move on to supportive housing right and open up some spaces because people always say oh people they won't go to shelters well there's 3,500 people that actually can't get into shelters
2: right and now now, yeah Sorry, I was just gonna say for folks who are maybe from outside of this area who don't know what the navigation center is that's it's kind of an experimental or and they're hoping to expand it but um, it's, it's kind of the first effort to try to address the, uh, that whole issue of, you know, they have to leave early in the morning and they can't have any partners or pets with them or any of their, their material, you know, their, their belongings. Um, I am kind of moved by what you're saying. How yes, that they're, they're doing that, but they're taking it away from other areas that need the money too. um, any, uh, headway with city leaders, you know, the, whether it's a mayor or supervisor, Mark Farrell has made the you know, homelessness one of his issues. I mean, are they understanding that that you know that those resources overall need to increase and not just be moved around?
3: Well, I think they do, and and they're trying to do more navigation centers. And so those of us who are working in the coalition um, uh, of housing emergency, Homeless emergency shelter providers um, are really trying to get that point across that more resources are needed. And so if you want to start another uh, navigation center, that's great. But how about getting those, that same kind of connection to the resources at the current shelters that you've got? So that's the message that we're trying to get across to them.
1: Michelle Miao and John Zipperer were speaking with Laura Slaughtery, who's the executive director of the Gubio Project, and we're having a discussion about homelessness, not just in San Francisco, but you know we're seeing this as a, uh, a nationwide issue that we should absolutely talk about. We got a couple minutes before we go on break, uh, Laura, and I wanted to bring this home um, to how it applies to the LGBTQI community. It, it's it's interesting because you know in the, if you're only following the press, and you're seeing that, wow, you know, uh, politically or or legally, we have made some strides or progress regarding the LGBTQI community. I I feel that the community is still suffering. um, The large percentage of homelessness, uh, you know, I could say that the LGBTQI community is impacted by homelessness, and not just that, but LGBTQI youths, right? Yes, for sure. There's a there's a there's a uh, Fong, our producer here, sent us a little bit of information that um, the 2013 San Francisco survey counted about uh, almost 2000 individuals who were chronically homeless. And of them, uh, 30 percent identified as LGBTQ, Uh, kind of from your experiences. Can you speak to that?
3: yeah and I think it's also updated though the last homeless count from two thousand and fifteen showed the exact same percentage um, yeah it's 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 I'm so glad that they're they're looking at that particular subset of folks look what um, they've been able to do when they have focused on the subset of veterans, saying that 19% of people living on the streets are veterans. And they've really been able to, you know, from the president on down, um, focus on that group. And so what can we say? Well, like 30% of people living on the streets, at least in San Francisco anyway, are GLBTQ. What can we do with a national focus or a, a state focus or even a, a, a local focus? That's not mm-hmm. okay. When we do the uh, surveys at the Gupio project, it turns out there's about 20% of the folks who are sleeping on the pews also identify as GLBTQ. Mm-hmm. And so, but I'm I'm excited that sometimes you know it's a what's a good adjective for the g- 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 history of the, the church with GLBTQ issues? Complicated, I guess, would be a, yeah. a, a nice <laughs> adjective. Um, but I'm so glad that at least Monday through Friday, from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m you know mm-hmm. at the Gubbio project and this catholic church folks feel welcome
1: that's so wonderful We've
3: bathroom is there transgender we had a transgender chaplain
1: i um, i, I want to talk more about that actually i want to yeah. talk about the services specific to the lgbtqi community let's take yes. a quick break when we come back we'll continue our discussion with Laura Slattery the executive director of the Gubbio project don't go away <laughs>
2: are
0: listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle meow show
4: thanks for listening to the progressive voices network streaming the best in progressive talk 24 7 keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community each week we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the progressive voices network and throughout the progressive world be the first to know of upcoming shows schedule changes exclusive programming and more simply go to progressive and sign up for our mailing list it's that easy ProgressiveVoices.com, thanks for listening and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.
1: Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. It's Michelle Meow, You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, November 10th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And our guest on the phone is Laura Slattery, who is the executive director of the Gubbio Project. The Gubio Project provides a safe place for homeless people to rest and sleep Monday through Friday during the day. Uh, Laura, I you know right before we went on break, we talked about uh, how a high percentage of those homeless identify as LGBTQ, and so for an organization like the Gubio Project, um, you know, are, there, are are there services that specific that are that are specific to the community, especially when you're talking about jobs and you're talking about you know uh, services for the transgender community? Um, can we can we discuss that a little bit further as far as the Gubio project goes?
3: Unfortunately, we don't actually, we're a very small organization and we've been focused on just when people come in. Um, And so what we can do when, when folks come in. And a lot of times uh, that entails like, where can they get food that day? Where can they get, if if folks need mental health services, where can they get uh, clean and sober if that's what they're wanting to do? So those are the kind of things we don't actually do like job uh, development or, um, uh, other kind of you know, maybe like step two uh, right. level services we are in the tenderloin and so we've got great partners with hospitality house who does that work and right around the corner we have one stop and st anthony's has got a tech lab and so we're right in the middle and so what we do if folks are, are needing services is we uh, are really great at like walking them across the street and, and getting them to where they need to go to get those services
2: and, and do you see lots of different people in that population of folks who come in every day, or do you have a lot of returnees? Are there folks who are there every day? Both and. Really? Mm-hmm.
3: We have folks that that have been coming, actually, for as long as I've been there, and I, I've been the director for six years. Um, anecdotally, maybe about 25% every week are new. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to also bring this up in our discussion this morning. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the Pope's visit to America was super impactful, and you talked a lot about compassion, and I think that the LGBTQI community, um, you know, the, the discussion about compassion did resonate with him, even if he met with Kim Davis. Uh, but the Gubbio Project and kind of the work that you do, Laura, uh, as a Catholic worker, you um, I feel like this organization is, is it kind of uh, emulates that compassion that the Pope is talking about. What are your feelings?
3: I, I totally agree. Um, we, have, uh, we have two quotes uh, right as people enter the, the door. I'm reaching over to get it here. Um, and one is by the Pope, and it says, I prefer a church bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been in the streets rather than a church clinging to its own security. That's a quote from Pope Francis that we've got, right? As people walk into the church. And the next quote we have is from Grace Lee Boggs and it says, Building community is the collect- is to the collective as spiritual practice is to the individual.
2: So what what drew you specifically to working with in with the homeless challenge? I mean that, that's a huge issue. It's it's it seems to always be with us. So what What made it something you wanted to spend your life working on?
3: Um, For me, uh, the work that I did before this, Mm -hmm. I was seven years at an organization called Pace Bene Nonviolence Service, where I was an international uh, liaison and also the GLBTQ coordinator. And and that was all about how do we transform ourselves and our society using nonviolence. Um, It was all, you know, structural change what I wanted to do is I wanted to do both structural change and direct service at the same time. And I feel like the Gubbio Project allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. I get to do direct service every day, it's people coming into the church day in and day out, right? Um, and they need socks or they need uh, a shower. So I can, I can help them out in that way. But then there's also the social change. What does it mean to use Space? Um, what does it mean to be church? What does it mean to uh, see one another as brother and sister as opposed to other? So I, I feel like, and in my speaking, and in my, my blogs, and in, my, um, uh, in the organization as a whole, I get to put that message out.
1: I, I want to I touch on that a little bit more because, uh, you know, it, it seems like even from the local blogs, like uh, even the local newspapers around here in the San Francisco Bay Area, there have been some tech workers who expressed their personal opinions regarding homelessness in San Francisco. And it almost seems like there's a lack of compassion for those uh, who are less fortunate to be able to afford, oh, I don't know. $5,000 in <laughs> rent for a, a micro box uh, of a you know, living space. And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on the changing climate of, of San Francisco. And, you know, for an organization like the Gubbio Project, how do you think that that will affect the services you provide and what you do as an organization for the most needy in San Francisco?
3: Gosh, there's so
1: many questions there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, and and I'm so passionate about it. I mean, who isn't? If you live and work in San Francisco today, I mean, homelessness is on top of everyone's mind. Whether you know it impacts you personally, or or even if it doesn't, it's it's in the news lately. And uh, you know, as an executive director of a small organization, who's doing all they can for for you know the the homeless here in the city, when it feels like no one else is doing much, and they can be doing it. Um, I just would really like your honest opinion and feedback about the issue.
3: So I remember when, when Goopman wrote something about a year ago, and he said about no, ad, no value, that the people on the streets were adding no value. And so they were talking about, you know, using that framework. And so I, I was using his framework to write back um, on on how do we know what value someone, you know, on the streets is adding um, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe a woman has been a mother of five kids and now she's, you know, struggling with mental health and she's on the streets. Um, and, and oftentimes we all think we add more value than we do. And we don't look about that, the harm that we bring. And sometimes I think tech folks, uh, they, don't, they don't look at the harm or, or what harm does racism or homophobia or things that, you know, is that more harmful than, say, public drunkenness? you know we don't people don't actually measure those things right they're almost impossible to measure so that's the one thing I, I think i would say about um on a personal level is to look at not only what we're what value we're adding but what harm we're adding as well um i've tried to work with some of the local um nonprofits for example i got invited into to dolby to do their new um Orientation. Uh, welcome to the neighborhood. And so, uh, it was interesting. The the, the new police chief, uh, the new police captain, and I were both talking about the neighborhood in, in very different ways. Um, and so, it's it's not just the new tech companies, but it's it's all the other folks too who, you know, have different perspectives about. You know what one should do when one sees some people on the streets. You know? um, I, I'm with the coalition I don't think Coalition on homeless, I don't think we should call the cops. I think we should figure out, you know, how mm-hmm. do we call the, the hot teams. And then lastly, there are, are companies that uh, are partnering with us. for example, Zendesk um, has been very generous with us. Uh, they're kind of a model of the, the tech companies coming in. As a matter of fact, they're hosting this event on December 3rd with um, Kamal Bell
1: right yes we will bring that up in just a, a, a couple minutes I wanted some you know people to remember to when we end the yeah, interview yeah, yeah. that they'll remember that John
2: um in in those numbers that uh, again Fong had sent us I think what one of the things that surprised me was uh, she says uh, more than half of the chronically homeless are over the age of 50 and a quarter are over 60 um, do you see any changes in that over time and 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 do you get it I mean do you do you, Know from these people why they became homeless. I mean, what were they pushed out because they couldn't afford things, or was it, you know, substance abuse that just kind of ran rampant, or or what, you know, how long have these folks been on the street? Really, I guess is what I'm getting at.
3: Yeah, that's that's a great question. And there are as many stories as there are people living on the streets. Sure. Um, it, all the things that you just mentioned. Uh, of course, those 30% who are LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of those, you know, can be. Uh, drawn back to getting kicked out of their houses because of their orientation, right? But some, you know, might have mental health issues and some might have addiction issues and some might have just lost a job and some might have um, thought it was a cool thing to come to San Francisco or they thought it was an opportunity to be here. Um, And it it fell through and they didn't have a safety net. Um, Some of the studies have shown that, you know, mental health um, issues multiply when you're on the streets. Yeah. So we, even if you don't start with mental health issues, you know, after a year or two on the streets, you're more likely to have them. Uh, same thing with addiction issues.
2: Well, and with mental health, and I know we had a big uh, program with us uh, at the Commonwealth Club not too long ago, where uh, you know, two of the top people were, were arguing about a larger issue of kind of like what structurally should be done. But one of the things they said was that, you know, one of the main ways we have of dealing with mental health in this country Is the prisons they're the largest mental health care provider and that's you know through the whole criminalization of homelessness you know someone acts up does something wrong they don't get mental health treatment in many cases they get sent to prison Um, and you know within the prisoners have to deal with it and of course that's not a very conducive atmosphere for Mm -hmm. uh, recovery
1: exactly so we just got a couple more minutes, and I promise that we will discuss this awesome, cool event that you have coming up December 3rd with uh, soci- social-political comedian Kamal Bell, which is extremely exciting. Um, tell us about that. Uh, you know, it's obviously a fundraiser, too, right?
3: It is going to be a fundraiser. And we are actually uh, hoping to open at a second site um, and so it's going to be, and I can't actually say where just yet because uh, we haven't, it hasn't um, become public yet, uh, but hopefully it's going to be a fundraiser for, for a second site, um, which I've been hoping for for about four years, and I've been trying and talking and uh, have been meeting actually with a lot of closed doors, but finally I, I've knocked on the right church door, uh, and, and they're going to open their doors not just to, to me, um, but to the homeless in their neighborhood.
2: Okay, where can people go to get more information on this fundraiser?
3: You can go to the uh, website, www.thegubio uh, which is G-U-B-B-I-O, uh, project.org, um, or you can call 415-861-5848.
1: Laura, thank you so much for spending this morning with us and having this, uh, that discussion regarding homelessness here in San Francisco, which can be applied to most major cities here in the United States. Uh, and thank you for all that you do. Thanks, Michelle, and thanks, John. Thank you. Don't go away. When we come back, we will continue the program with another awesome interview.
0: You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the
5: Michelle Miao Show. I'm Heclina.
0: listening to the best of the Michelle Miao show your A through Z covering the LGBT LMNOP and everyone in between show and now your host Michelle Miao <laughs>
1: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, November 10th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Hi, Michelle. We have a great show for you. We just spent half an hour discussing the homeless issue that uh, not just, you know, affects San Francisco, although I think San Francisco is a great example of of the disparity, you know, that is um, obvious, you know, here in terms of inequalities. And so we'll continue that discussion of just kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, in in talking about the most marginalized of our community. So our next guest is DeShane Stokes, who's a late discovery adoptee, uh, an author, a speaker and commentator known for his work advancing civil rights and social justice. He recently completed a memoir about his experience and also had an article um, talking about foster care and adoption that was featured in Huffington Post and The Advocate. DeShane, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. Um, I you know I'm so happy to have you on as well. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, we just talked about homelessness, but I feel like you know just the topic of homelessness and, and not having a safe place to go to goes hand in hand with foster care and adoption and how that applies to the LGBTQ community. I mean, there's a there's a there is a, a correlation um, when you talk about kids who who don't even have a safe place to go to. Let's start with talking about you. I mean, I just said it in your introduction. You're a late discovery adoptee. What does that mean?
6: Well, it means that I I didn't find out that I was adopted until I was an adult, until I was actually 20 years old.
1: Uh, And you know, obviously now you're an activist and a spokesperson uh, that also for foster care and adoption. Um, Do you would you like to share just kind of your personal experiences in you know being adopted and what that meant to you, and kind of why you're passionate about the work that you do today?
6: Yeah, sure. Um, well, like I said, I didn't actually find out I was adopted until I was twenty, and so I came to the experience fairly late compared to most people. Most people, of course, find out and learn that they're adopted as children, and so that's something that was missing that I was growing uh, when I was growing up. But you know, ever since I found out I was adopted, it really put a lot of other things in perspective, like helped me better connect with. Uh, my actual ancestry it put a lot of other things into question, of course, but it also raised my awareness to a lot of issues that are going on today for a lot of other adoptees and other people who, um, like myself as a young child, uh, were in foster care. Like, I didn't actually know that I was in foster care originally, but since then I found out that I was in foster care, and so this is part of some of the reason why I have such an interest in talking about adoption and, and foster care issues.
2: Do you wish you had uh, known earlier, and if so, kind of at what age, do you wish you had known it, or would that is there an age, be you know below which it's scarier to know that? I, I don't really know what uh, the effect would be on me, frankly.
6: Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, the, the 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 appropriate age uh, for a child or for a person in general to find out they're adopted it really varies. Like it's something that's very particular to the person, mm-hmm. you know, their background, their experiences, you know, where they're at as people. So it's something that very much varies. Um. Yeah. How about you? Well, I think I think it's I think it would have been better to have uh, learned as a as a child, definitely, because it would have it would have put so many other things in, into um, clear perspective. Then I wouldn't have had to have you know made this discovery as an adult. Um, is what what actually happened? Um, how I discovered. Um, I was trying to get enrolled in my tribe. Like, I, I identify I'm Laput, I'm Native American. Mm-hmm. And so when I was an adult, um, when I was 20 years old, I was trying to get enrolled in my tribe so that I could secure my religious freedom. And this is something I needed to be enrolled in my tribe in order to keep eagle feathers, which is part of my spirituality. And so you know, I started looking around, and I, I, I managed to contact my, uh, the person I believed was my biological father. And you know, we managed to reconnect uh, that summer just after I turned 20. And then you know, I came back to my home in South Dakota and found this letter from his parents saying, you know, in his offhand remark, oh, by the way, like, you know, you're adopted. <laughs> and it just, yeah, it just, it just totally blew me away. Um, it's something that in a lot of ways I still struggle with and I still wrestle with even today. But, you know, it's, it definitely put a lot of other things in perspective. So I think I think definitely children should find out as children, although what particular age, you know, that very much depends on the child.
1: And, you know, just discussing openly about the impact of uh, you know, finding out if you're adopted or, or uh, you know, fostered, um, there are... How this applies to the LGBTQ community, I mean, reading your article, uh, you know, there are still 11 states here in this this country that it's not legal for gay parents to adopt or foster kids. And you know, this month is National Adoption Month, or uh, last week also marked the twentieth anniversary. Why, you know, is the title suggests how homophobia is hurting our nation's foster children? Um, let's talk about that. Let's open that discussion up.
6: Yeah. Well, like you mentioned, this is this is the twentieth anniversary of National Adoption Month, and of course, this is the time of year we hear all these stories about, you know, children needing homes. We hear about, for example, that. Um, and this is, this is a really uh, scary statistic is that 400,000 children linger on average for about two years in the foster care system. And so every year um, at National Adoption Month, you know, we hear these stories, you know, talking about this, trying to find these children homes. But the major problem that we have with that is, you know, these kids really should have found homes a long time ago. Now, this is something that, you know, if you kind of think and you kind of step back and think about this, what's going on right now really doesn't make sense. So what's going on right now, okay, so we have 400,000 kids that need homes, and yet we have um, 2 million LGBT adults who want to parent children, who want to parent, right? And many of them would love to do do so through adoption. And so we've got all these kids that need homes, we've got all these parents, and yet just like you said a moment ago, 11 states continue to ban them from adopting. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever,
2: you know, earlier this year, Michelle and I interviewed author David Gerald, who wrote a best-selling novel about his experience as a gay man adopting a son. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's a single man living down in L.A., so here in California. But does, the, the, does it matter whether the, the LGBT parent or parents are, you know, single, partnered, or married? Does that play in, or is it totally in those states that are, really have a, a legal issue with it, simply a matter of gay straight?
6: I think there really varies. Mm-hmm. I think most, most couple like most uh, states they want you know they want children to be in, in homes with two parents. So that's sort of the major push for a lot of them, but that doesn't mean that single parents can't adopt. Like, there are single parents out there that can adopt. Mm-hmm. And that of course, becomes more of an issue for LGBT uh, community uh, members, because you know, we, we have all these states that want to ban them from adopting at all.
1: Yeah, DeShane, what's on the other side of it? You know, we know that uh, homophobia impacts LGBT potential parents, but there are also mm-hmm. LGBT kids um, who need adoption and foster care. I mean, in, in terms of or, you know, if we had to compare between LGBTQ children who need a home versus, mm. you know, straight kids who need a home, um, can you can you give us some figures there? Does, does it make a difference? Yeah, it
6: really does make a difference, and it really illustrates the larger problem that our society is having with homophobia. Um, we know, for example, that LGBT children are grossly overrepresented in the foster care system. I mean, in some states, like in Washington and, and uh, California, we know that some, somewhere close to about 20% of foster children identify as LGBT. And that's actually more—that's roughly double that in the general population in, in America. And we also know too that these LGBT children—they oftentimes receive much worse treatment than their non-LGBT peers. I mean, there's there's lots of studies that show, for example, that uh, they tend to experience more foster care placements. They're more likely to be hospitalized for emotional reasons. Um, they, you know, there's just all these problems with this that, that, that focus on LGBT. Like if you're not LGBT, you know, somehow you're treated differently than if, than if you are. And that's just wrong.
2: That's interesting. I had never really kind of wondered from the adoption agency or, or government agencies, you know, are handling the, these services from their per- point of view, if they would know that the student, the, the youth is, is LGBTQ and if they would tell adoptive, you know, or potential foster parents of that. Mm. But apparently they they do, and they, and they do pass it on?
6: Well, that's not something that I can really speak to. I know that um, they will, you know, look at the, the kid and the particular needs of the kid. They'll look at, you know, the needs and the abilities of the families. But mm-hmm. um, oftentimes they don't do a very good assessment um, about whether or not these foster homes or foster families can actually support LGBT children. Yeah. Like Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't, sometimes there's a mix. And we really need more uh, thorough assessment for these things, and especially more training as well.
2: Well, certainly you'd, you'd, I'd be concerned about children being placed in an, a family that is vociferously anti-LGBTQ. I mean, that that would be... Yeah.
1: DeShane, geographically speaking, where, you know, so the most or the bulk of the 400,000 kids who need home today, um, you know, where, where are they re- located, I, I should say? I mean, I, I'm sure of it. they're all across the United States, but in, yeah. and where I'm going with that is, you know, the 11 states that do not allow for LGBT parents to adopt, um, how much of an impact or percentage-wise of the kids who do need homes in those states, uh, that's what I'm wondering Hmm. I don't have that information. Okay. Yeah, no problem. It was just like, you know, maybe I could fly a plane over to some of those states and rescue the kids and bring them over and (laughs) and re-assume them. Yeah, it gets to the
2: whole ridiculousness of excluding a whole group of folks who are willing and able to provide a safe and, and welcoming home to the kids because of prejudice.
1: Mm-hmm. And, we, you know, and we have a couple minutes before we go on break, but maybe we could just open up this discussion now. Um, you, there were some statistics in the article that you posted financially, because I know that with conservatives, um, the, the numbers part makes sense, right? When it hits taxpayers' <laughs> bank accounts, they always want to go there. But the uh, ironic thing is uh, the states that do not allow for adoption or foster care uh, as far as LGBT parents goes. I mean, you know, how much do we spend in foster care as far as tax dollars goes?
6: And we actually spend about $22 billion each year. And that works out to about $70 out of the pocket of every man and child in the country.
1: And so if, if we did the simple math, if we allowed in the, you know, the, the, if, if homophobia was not an issue, we would be saving people, taxpayers, uh, that's the simple math, right? We would be saving yeah. taxpayers some money.
6: A lot of money, yeah. And helping children in,
1: in the process.
2: I'd love to see someone actually calculate across all issues and, and expenses and all this, just the cost of homophobia.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. what,
2: what ridiculous amount of money we're paying for this. Yeah. Well,
1: let's stop here and take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Deshane. Deshane, don't go away. Okay.
0: are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle
4: Meow Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices
0: and now back to the michelle meow show
1: It's Michelle Meow, You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, November 10th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and we have John Zipper of Commonwealth Club with us. Our guest on the phone is Deshane Stokes, who is uh, an advocate, a speaker, commentator, and civil rights activist. And we're having a discussion about foster care and adoption since it is National Adoption Month. And um, unfortunately the impact of homophobia and what that does to potential LGBT parents and also LGBTQ kids who need to be adopted or um, who are in foster care. DeShane, you know, we we talked a little bit about the negative impact that this could have on LGBT children in foster care. And it was interesting because, you know, just yesterday, yesterday morning, I saw this um, thing on 2020 with uh, uh, the family out in Arkansas who rehomed um, children that he adopted. I don't, I don't know if you know that story.
6: Mm, not yet, no.
1: Um, yeah, it was some, like, controversy around it, um, and so obviously the parents uh, the, that adopted the three girls who were abused uh, from a different home, you know, were uh, devout Christians, and so it was this big discussion about how people are sometimes not equipped to be good parents, to mm-hmm. kids who uh, you know have been abused and i would say that you know that also is the case if um if if lgbtq students are being sent to a home that may not be equipped and i think you and john talked about this right before the break but if we could we could really hit that home for our listeners and why it's so important and how you know this continued homophobia that exists here in this country takes away from LGBT kids that would be great
6: yeah, definitely. It's something that deprives kids of homes. It deprives parents of of children. It basically prevents families from ever forming. And what's amazing, and you're you're talking about this this uh, theme of abuse and neglect. Um, something that a lot of people who oppose same-sex adoption talk about is, you know, that the parents are going to somehow abuse or neglect their kids. Well, I can tell you from personal experience, um, my parents being heterosexual didn't prevent them from abusing me and neglecting me any more than parents being LGBT would somehow cause them to abuse and neglect their children. this just doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. You
2: tweeted recently that adoption is a lifelong experience. What did you mean by that?
6: Well, something that doesn't just end, you know, once you become adopted, it's, that's really just the very beginning. I mean, you still, have to, you still have to think about, okay, what are the needs of the child, and then how are, how are those needs going to develop over the course of this person's lifetime? I mean, just being adopted, I mean, it's something that once you're adopted, you're adopted like the rest of your life, I mean, that, you know, for as long as you're in that family. And it, it isn't something that just suddenly vanishes, and your needs don't suddenly change. You know, your needs don't, don't suddenly go away just because you've been adopted. That's really just the beginning of the story.
2: So, do you have a? Do you still have a relationship with your adopted parents? Yeah,
6: yeah, I'm very close with my mom. Yeah, definitely.
2: Um, what about your birth parents?
6: I'm. I actually made contact with my biological mother. Um, when I was 22, so about 15 years ago, we still mm-hmm. keep in touch a little bit here and there, but not as much. We're in different states,
1: sure. But she, it, it's
6: or it's hard sometimes.
2: And and I mean, I'm asking about your private life, so I hope I'm not sure. being sensitive. But I mean, was she no, no was she open to ha- hearing about it from you, or was she scared? Was she happy? can you tell us how that went?
6: Yeah, um, my understanding from from our discussions and everything, like we, we actually talked for a while before we finally met. Um, lots of mixed reactions on, from, from both of us, like a lot of excitement, some hesitation, fear. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you how do you connect with someone after not seeing them for twenty years? I mean, it, it's, it's 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 almost impossible to describe, and yet we we somehow did. Like she came out to visit me when I was in South Dakota, and we connected, and we stayed in touch since then. <laughs>
1: Uh, DeShane, thanks so much for sharing your story and just sharing the work that you do. We're running up against time. And so I got one last question for you and just kind of, you know, to wrap up this discussion about homophobia and how it impacts, um, you know, foster kids and and kids who need uh, adopting. Uh, You know, the president has has made comments about, you know, how everyone deserves a a home to go to regardless of Mm -hmm. sexual orientation, gender identity. My my. My guess is that, you know, the entire foster care, uh, I guess, uh, the entire system and adoption system needs a a complete, you know, rehauling of all of their policies to make sure that LGBTQ people as potential parents and also kids, you know, are included in the discussion. Um, But what as an activist do you think that this country needs to do in order to make it uh, a better, you know, better situation?
6: Well, we need more people to speak up, to share their experiences. Like, for example, we hear sometimes from adoptees who talk talk out against same-sex adoption. Well, some of those people in their stories, like they're really just cherry-picking really bad examples. And these are people sometimes who have issues that are unresolved and they're really just talking about something else and just sort of blaming the parents being LGBT when that's really not the problem. So we really need to hear from more adoptees like talking about their experiences. We need uh, to definitely, as we mentioned earlier, the 11 states that still ban um, LGBT adoption, we need those states to change. We need those states to get on board with the direction that our country is going in. We're going to become a much more inclusive society. We need them to get on board. And we need to do much more to protect those kids that are in foster care now. We need better Better assessments of their homes, we need better training and so much more.
2: Are you optimistic that things are moving in that direction?
6: Yeah, definitely, definitely. We've seen so much change already, and, and it, we're definitely going in the right direction. We just need to, you know, take it the rest of the way. Sure.
1: Deshane, thank you so much for all that you do and for being a uh, spokesperson for the foster and adoption community. Yeah, thank you, Michelle. For more information and to follow Deshane's work, you can follow him on Twitter at De- Deshane Stokes, and that's D A S H A N N E, or you can visit his website at DeShaneStokes.com. Well, that's the end of the show, or, or that's a you know John Zipper and I will now give our final thoughts. I am so excited to be back in studio and to be talking about these things that we need to talk about.
2: Uh, you look excited. I hope that's coming across on the radio because, folks, she's like literally jumping up and down in her chair like Tom Cruise.
1: <laughs> Punching the air. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. Like every time, I, you know, my voice goes up and down. Um, no, but seriously, I mean, I think that, you know, for a little bit there, especially since after my experience at Walmart and, you know, people at Walmart telling me that my – me – My existence, what I look like, what I represent, my life, my orientation, my gender identity is too political, you know, to make changes at the company. And it really made me feel so horrible. I went up to my hotel room and I cried all night long. And you know, and I I couldn't call my partner. She was away at work. I couldn't call, and I didn't want to call <laughs> people in my community. So wait a minute. Community.
2: This was what was behind because Walmart did come out with a new commercial. It said, you know, Walmart will make you cry all night. <laughs> I'm not sure that yeah. directly addresses you, but I'm I'm putting it together now. I think it did.
1: Um, <laughs> you know, I I absolutely recognize the work that they're trying to do. I think that Walmart is at a place in 2015 where, you know, for whatever amount of years that the Waltons and anybody else who had been there at a control room, you know, they finally recognized that where millennials are going, you know, millennials are a lot more liberal than their parents.
2: Well, let me say something in Walmart's favor, and I don't tend to shop at Walmart or Target much, but, um, Walmart is, in fact, known as one of the greenest companies mm-hmm. in, in possibly the world. I mean, and they not don't not just in their own practices, but down their supply line, really forcing their suppliers to adhere to certain practices. Um, so I'm I, I think a, a one reaction certainly is that this is just very cynical. Okay, whatever the millennials want, we want to know what it is, mm-hmm. and if we can afford it, we'll do it. Um, another thing is that there is some effort within that organization at, at whatever levels to try to move in a direction that may not be anathema to you.
1: Well, Doug McMillan has been, you know, CEO for, what, a year and a half, so he's new and he's uh, younger and, um, you know, Is is he, he like, 30? (laughs) Well, uh, he's not 80. (laughs) <laughs> and and I think that him stepping up a, an out against uh, Rifra or the Religious Freedom That's Restoration right. Act right. in Arkansas was a was a huge thing for him. But I think that he's very careful as to not make such um, big political statements, you know, because they still have shareholders who <laughs> are pretty conservative and Republican. Um, so I, I'm not going. I'm not sitting here trashing Walmart at all. Um, but do, well, I absolutely say that they have a lot more work to do and to continue doing. That I do. And I think they recognize that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're very proud. You know, Doug McMillan's very proud of the fact that Walmart has finally raised minimum wage um, to something more than <laughs> I don't know, than what it was. Okay. Um, And I think they're, you know, very proud to be working with women's rights organizations, although uh, they were limited in terms of what that work was about, but maybe empowering women and, you know, job placement and stuff like that. So I have so much more to say. If you want to hear my experiences regarding Walmart, you can write to me, michellemiao.com. I think most people know when you write to me, I respond pretty quickly and I I do respond. I personally respond to your emails. Uh, But, you know, what that whole experience made me realize is, what am I fighting for? And what are the voices that I want to represent? And today's show, and I'm so glad to share this experience with you, John, was a representation of that, that this show is designed for the most marginalized, the the most vulnerable, uh, to also have a voice too. But that's also, but, you know, we also need to hear the voices from the people who are doing, pro, you know, progressive things and then people who are not doing so progressive things because we all can learn from each other. I think I said that pretty well. I don't know. I,
2: I think you're quoting Pope Francis on a lot of that <laughs> stuff.
1: Uh, you know, I, in my lifetime, I had not um, really seen one individual make such a huge impact just by visiting somewhere, you know, ge- geographical location. And I think in my time, you know, uh, I will always be able to tell my kids when the Pope came to the United States, he met with Kim Davis. <laughs> That was a joke. That was a joke. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us here today. We will have another brand new spanking show for you tomorrow, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. So make sure you tune in. And for everything else, you can head to MichelleMeow.com or visit CommonwealthClub.org. Search Meow and all of our podcasts with John Zipper is stored there as well. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. You can catch The Michelle Meow Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network.